The rest of you can turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. As we look at peace this morning and Advent, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 4 where Solomon is ruling the nation of Israel as David's son. And he, he brings peace to the nation, brings peace to his people. And in a lot of ways, David, Solomon as David's son is a picture of Christ, not a perfect picture. As uh, the children are saying about, there's true and better, uh, Christ is the true and better picture. But Solomon gives us a picture of things that Christ really is going to usher in fully, and we're going to look at that uh, later on. But just that sense of, there's, a, there's this, this David's son who's come in and he brings peace to the nation. And we want to look at that this morning and then look at what it means for us today, because uh, there's a lot of reasons why we don't have peace, right? Why to step back and reflect on Advent is a really good thing. If you know Pastor Chris this morning, you need to pray that he has peace because his Georgia Bulldogs lost at the last step to Alabama. And uh, so I texted him last night. I was like, that was a tough, tough game. Um, so you could just be praying for him, you can commiserate with him, um, or you can mock him if you're a Tennessee fan. Um, there's a few in, this, in, the, in, the, uh, in the building. But no, but, but why? Because we, we, there's a lot of things that you're like, well, life isn't going the way I want it to go. Life isn't going the way I wish it would go. So, so how am I supposed to have peace? How am I supposed to have this sense of calm and rest and that things fit together when things don't fit together, when things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? And that's a great question. And as we look into Scripture this morning, my hope is that you'll see the peace that Solomon gives to Israel as a picture of the peace that Christ is going to give to us and in some ways gives us even now today. And so let's read 1 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 20. And this kind of just summarizes some of the things that happen in Solomon's rule. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fed oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. Now just... Just to make a comment here, it's not like he ate all of that food all himself, right? Well, you get this, right? This is for his household, all the people that he is taking care of. Um, that, that this is what it takes to, to take care of that is the point. Because he he's, has dominion over a wide range. That's the emphasis, right? He's, he's, he's created this peace over this, this, this wide swath of the Middle East, it's verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beer, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And 
those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all, the, all who came to King Solomon's temple, table, even each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. Now, in these pictures of, of Solomon, and in some ways as they also as he represents Christ in a sense, you, you all always see the, the negative sides too. And one of the negatives is kind of here in the sense that they weren't supposed to put their trust in chariots and horses. They were supposed to trust in God, and yet... Solomon built up things around him that he trusted in rather than God. And that's, here's a picture of that. But it's, it's in this whole picture of look at the wealth and the power that Solomon had and therefore the peace that he gave. And let's just finish out the chapter here. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all the other men. Wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, Kalkal, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the, uh, out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom." So you see here that the, also the peace is not, is not emphasized simply as a power, like he's got so much power and control over all the other nations that peace is provided, but he's actually blessing the, the nations around him by his wisdom, that he could, he could speak of God's creation and, and how it operated. He could speak of how to operate in God's world with wisdom, and he spoke these things in songs and in Proverbs, and we have examples of those in, in Proverbs. Obviously, the Proverbs that we have in our Bible are not all the Proverbs that Solomon spoke. The songs that Solomon wrote, wrote down are not all the, the songs that, that Solomon wrote down. But we get some of those, and they're a blessing not only to Israel, but to the world. And that pr- produces peace as well. And so here's this, this, in a sense, this idyllic reign. You get this picture of this idyllic reign. And it's pictured in some ways, both here in Scripture and in other places, as in this phrase, in verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in, in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under, and under his fig tree. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and it's used in a couple of different places in Scripture, and we're going to look at those as we think through what does it mean to have peace. Because this phrase, under his vine and under his fig tree, it, it kind of captures this picture of, well, it's, the vine and the fig tree in, a, in an agrarian society, especially in a society that valued sheep, right, and, and, and herding, shepherding, um, the vine and the fig tree represented stability, okay, right? Because they could actually grow something, and it would take it takes years to get that vine up and, and grown. The fig tree it takes a while to produce figs, so it produces to have your own vine and fig tree that you can enjoy means that you've lived in the same spot for a while, and you've been able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. It also, both of those are somewhat luxury items, right? The vine and the fig tree, you don't need those to survive like you need sheep, like you need grain, 
So they're somewhat luxury items. There, it doesn't say that everyone, every man, has his own vineyard and his own fig orchard. They're not talking about excessive luxury, but they're just talking about some things that you can enjoy about life. And so you have this picture of safety that means that you can live in the same spot where you you don't have to move because of oppression or a war or something like that, and you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. So that you have a few luxuries in life and you can enjoy those with your family and enjoy that together you have a pot of safety, stability, and that you can therefore work and enjoy the, the results of that work. That's the picture here of the, the vine and the fig tree. And this was used, um, actually, someone who really loved this picture was George Washington. They used it uh, often in, in the, in, he used it often, and it was used in the wider American culture. Uh, one time in 1787, the New York Journal alluded to the idea of the vine and the fig tree as a place for the nations to come, that America, in a sense, would be a place where the nations could come to have some safety and to have their own vine and fig tree. And, and George Washington used it several places. One place he, he, he wrote to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. And in the letter, Washington proclaimed, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land, that is in America, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. So this, this is a... This is a picture that captured, in some ways, the American imagination, especially during that American Revolution period, where it was like, what are, we, what are we supposed to be about as a nation? What are we supposed to be doing as a nation? And there's this picture of creating stability and safety so that the people of this nation can enjoy the fruits of their labor they can, they can have stability and safety. They can live in where, where they want to live and enjoy the, 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 a few luxuries in life, so to speak, right? And, and that's, that's, in a sense, the, if you will, the American dream. We've, we've moved away from a vine and fig tree, and now it's a house and maybe two cars and uh, you know, a certain level of income. And it, but it's the same idea, right? And what it's saying here is that, that sense, that sense for wanting to, to be stable, wanting to be safe, wanting to be able to, to, to enjoy the fruits of your labor, labor and, and to know that you can do some, do some good to your family and provide good to your family, that's, that's not a bad thing. In some ways, that is peace, is it not? To be able to, to step back and say, you know what, I've got a chance to do something here. I've got a chance to live here. I've got a chance to, to, to walk this with my family and to, to, to be blessed. And so this is what Solomon created, but it didn't last. It didn't last because of Israel's sin, Israel's pride sometimes in taking <laughs> and, and assuming that, hey, we can behave however we want and God will still give us our own vine and our own fig tree and we can just do whatever we please because he promised this land to us. We, don't, we can just live however we please and that was wrong. God 
ultimately kicked them out of the land. But it's used in a couple other places, so I'm just going to just refer to go, go to those places as we think through this, uh, this idea of living under your own vine and under your own fig tree and, and help you to see how it's used in other places to kind of flesh out the full picture. So we, the first place I want to think about this, and it's in the passage as well here, is that we know peace through fulfilled prophecy. We know peace through fulfilled prophecy. Now in 1 Kings 4, there's a reference here that you might not catch unless you're like really familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because it says in verse, verse 20, right? Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, the sand of the seashore. Now, what did God promise to Abraham, right? That his children would be as the sand of the sea. Now, you say, well, that literally, I mean, there weren't billions and billions of Israelites. Yes, I get that. There's a, there's a portion to which that's, that it's metaphorical as well as spiritual, but there's a sense in which, which the promises to Abraham of creating a, a nation and giving them a place and, and providing a land for them, giving them a king, the, all of these promises are fulfilled ultimately in Solomon because he's created this peace. The nation is stable. The, he, he's, he's, he's got the, the, the temple. There's a worship of God. They, they, they're following God. God is their God, and, he, and they are his people. And there's this peace that results because God had kept his promises. And that's why there is peace in 1 Kings 4, ultimately, is not because Solomon was such a wise guy or David was such a a great military leader. The the reason why they have peace in 1 Kings 4 is because God kept his word. And when you think about peace and how 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 are we going to have peace, it comes ultimately back to the fact that for us to have peace, God needs to keep his word. Now, one place that you can go to show this, and it actually uses the vine and the fig to talk about it, is Micah chapter 4. And I've got it up here on the screen. If you want to look at her, you can, you can flip in your Bibles to Micah chapter 4. Micah is, is writing about the nation of Israel and the fact that they need to be kicked out of the land and then ultimately they're going to be brought back in. Micah chapter 5, right, and a few verses later, and 5-2 is a famous prophecy about the Messiah, right? He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet from you shall one come forth who will be leader of my people Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That is, he's going to come and create peace once again. The goings forth is a, is a picture of going into battle, fighting for his people. And this one whose goings forth have been from everlasting is going to come from Bethlehem, and make peace. And here in, in Micah chapter 4, it's talking about that peace that's going to come to pass. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So it's talking about Israel as a nation and saying the kingdom of Israel will be lifted up above the other nations in power, influence, authority, and the, and, and the peoples that his nation shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. There's, 
there's going to come a point in time when Christ returns, when he's going to set up his kingdom, and the nations of the earth are going to say, we want to follow Christ because he's delivered us from this death and destruction and this hatred that's happening in the world, and we want to learn his ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is why, they, this is the reason why they want to come. It's because there's this wisdom and law that helps people to have peace. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for nations, strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, here it is, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none of them shall be afraid. Right? He's saying, not, not only will Israel have this peace, but the entire world will have this peace. When God makes peace. And how do we know that? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The God who rules and reigns and who can make peace will make peace. That is why Christ is called in Isaiah the Prince of Peace. Because he is going to make peace amongst the nations at his return. And he is going to, 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 to bring that peace not just simply by power, but by his wisdom, by his, by his understanding, by his encouragement of, of following God's ways and following God's rule. And so... Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like this, uh, you know, this time of year it gets dark quick, and so you don't see it as much during the summer, but, but you, it, during the winter time, you, you see, it gets dark, and so therefore you see a reflection outside that you think is something outside that's not actually outside, right? This happened to Judson yesterday. He was like, he's looking out there, he's like, something's out there. And he realized, no, it's not out there. It's actually in here, right? It's a reflection of something that's happening in here. And, and sometimes we think of peace as this elusive thing that we, oh, we look at it and we see it. Oh, it's, it's but then we realize when I get close to it, it's, it disappears. It's not there. It's not real. But the reality of peace is that God promised it, and he kept his word to Israel, and just as he kept his word to Israel back then, and he has promised to Israel and to the nations what will happen in the future, he is going to keep his word. And this is something that we can cling to, we can, we can believe it. It's not a reflection in a glass that when you experience it, you're like, well, it's, it's a mirage, it's not really there, it's, it's something in here. No, this is real. And yes, it's not real yet. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's as real as what happened yesterday is the fact that tomorrow, whenever that tomorrow comes, Christ is going to rule and reign at all the nations and all their disputes and all their, their, their ways they're, they're trying to get get more power and get more influence and get more money and get more land and fight with each other. And there, that's why we still have to learn war and we still have to go through all of these things. All of that will end. 
Can you imagine for a moment a world where the nations don't have standing armies? Where we're not investing our manufacturing in making bullets and bombs, but we're investing our manufacturing in blessing others. You say, well, can't we do that on our own? Well, we'll get there, actually, and that kind of brings us me to, to point number two, which is no peace through proper surrender. No peace through proper surrender. Why can't we get there on our own? Why can't we do it? Well, there's a temptation to think that I can get peace anywhere. I can make peace happen through any means. And this isn't just something that we experience. It's something that Israel experienced. And again, another example of this vine and fig tree language is found in this, this conflict between Assyria as they were coming to conquer Israel and, and, and Judah. And, and Hezekiah had to stand against them and say, no, we need to trust God and not just give in to Assyria. And so in Isaiah chapter 36, this is... Uh, this is the, the guy who's trying to convince Israel to surrender, okay? Don't fight us. We're too powerful. We've defeated Israel. We've defeated all the other nations. Judah, you need to now just bow the knee and let us, let us take over because it'll be so much better for you. And so this is what he's saying. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Surrender to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree and each of his own will drink of his water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. This is what Assyria did. They conquered people and then they moved people around because you take people out of their homeland, they don't have as much to fight for. And so he's, he's using the same imagery. It's not just a biblical imagery. It's just, it's obviously a common cultural imagery for peace. He's saying, hey, if you make peace with me now, then I'll, I'll leave you alone. You can, you know, just do your lives and enjoy the fruits of your labor. And, and then at some point I'll, I'll come and I'll take you to a, a land that's like your land and you can have that land and you can be okay. Just, just make peace. Isn't it okay? Like, basically, can't the king of Assyria make peace? They're the most powerful. They're the most wealthy. They're the most in control. Can't those people make peace? The rich people, the people who are powerful, the people who have wealth and influence, can't they make peace? And yet, God is saying, don't trust them because I'm the one who makes peace. Assyria is going to fall. There's going to be another kingdom to replace them. There's them making peace by power alone, by wealth alone, will not make peace. And this isn't just Israel's dilemma back then. This is our dilemma now, right? We we have promises of peace made to us. If you'll do X, if you'll do Y, then you can have peace. You can live under your own fig tree and, and, and under your own vine and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Where do we have those promises made to us? Well, athletics, right? If you work hard enough, and if you're good enough athletes, 
you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. You can, you can, you can, and, and you can have peace and prosperity in your life. Athletics is good. It's not bad. It's a great way to learn lessons about life, to learn skills in life. It's not bad. But it can become an idol. It can become a replacement of the promises of God in your life. Amy and I talk about her experience up in, in Duluth, Minnesota, where hockey is not just a sport, it's a religion. They don't just play hockey up there, they worship hockey up there. And hockey makes promises. Give your life, give your energy, give your youth, and maybe, just maybe, you'll make it to the NHL, right? And the problem is, is that, especially for Christian parents, if they, if they gave, if they bought into those promises, they lost their kids, If they said, okay, we're going to invest our kids' youth in hockey and, and, and we're not going to worry about church right now, we're not going to talk about God right now, we're not going to invest in, in worshiping God and loving God, they lost their kids. Why? Because you can only, really only have one God. <laughs> As Christ put it, you cannot serve God and money. Who's really in charge? And it's just athletics that makes those promises. Sometimes it's jobs, right? It's, it's, it's money. If you'll, if you'll pursue this career and sacrifice yourself for this career, then you'll have enough money and you can enjoy the fruits of your labor and you can have this. What if peace isn't found through money? Then where are you? Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's pleasure, right? Things coming to us, making promises to us, and instead of turning to God and saying, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to trust in God's promises to me, we instead take other idols' promises to us, and we say, I'm going to take these idols' promises, trust these promises, and hope that these promises pan out. And if you surrender, to the wrong God, yes, you might have peace for a while, but then you have no peace, unless it's Jehovah God, because he's the only God who reigns. He's the only God in control. He's the only God that you can really trust. And so, we know peace through understanding who we need to properly surrender to. And, and my question to you in that is, is simply, who is going to give you peace? Whose promises have you bought into? Just in the quietness of your own heart, where, where are you at on this? Because I know my own heart. I, I buy into promises that if I do X and Y, people will like me. I buy into promises that, that if I have, you know, if I have this kind of income, then I'll be, I'll be okay. I won't have to worry as much. I'll have more peace. I buy into promises that, yeah, I can. The older you get, the more you realize that 
your body can't sustain you, right? Like when I was, when I was 40, I thought to myself, you know what? Just keep working at it. It'll get better. You know, now that I'm 48, I'm like, nope. You know, I got to keep working at it. There's no question I got to keep working at it, but, but my body is not getting any better, you know. It's, it's just not happening. It, what promises are you buying into? Just between you and God. Because if you're buying into the wrong promises, you won't end up at peace. And I want you to end up at peace. I want you to have that peace that passes understanding that you know the God who exists, who loves you, who walks with you, who has made promises to you that he will keep, that he can keep because he's the God of the universe. So no peace through proper surrender to the right God of the universe. And then the last way, in some ways, no peace through space created by grace. You see, 1 Kings 4 is this peace that God had created, not because David had earned it, not because Solomon deserved it, but because he gave his grace. And again, sometimes we think, I can create peace by solving my own problems. Like, I don't need any help in this. I, I, can, I can look inside of myself. I can work hard. I can make my peace for myself. But we are not powerful enough to create peace on our own. But we have been given grace. In Zechariah chapter 3, it says this, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. So it's just a, it's a picture here of this, of this stone that's saying that, that God's presence, God's care is with Joshua, who is the current priest at the time when they're, they're coming back into the land and they're seeking to rebuild the temple. The, 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 the priest kind of ruler at that time was Joshua, and he's saying, I'm going to be with Joshua and I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of, of the sin of this land. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What is he saying here? He's saying, when I provide grace, when I provide forgiveness, then you're, you're going to be at peace. And not only will you be at peace for yourself, you'll be like, hey, who can I invite? <laughs> Who can I bring in? If you are God's child, you are chosen, you are adopted, you are redeemed, you are given an inheritance that cannot pass away. This is who you are in Christ. You have been given grace. And that means right now, Things can come at you, but you have this space created by grace. Think of it like this, like think of it as if, okay, you've got different things coming at you. Maybe it's, 
you know, the, uh, the announcement of a new variant with COVID, or you've got, oh, my child, they're going through this right now, or man, my job situation is getting a little tenuous. And there's these things that are coming at you that to make peace, you're like, I've got I've to take control of those things. I've got c- to control those things. I've got to make them not a threat to me. And if you're constantly fighting to make over those things not a threat, you know what? You're never going to be at peace. Because your ability to make peace for yourself is limited. But grace steps in, and it creates this house, if you will, with walls that are thick and strong. And yes, those things are still out there, but you have this space to be like, okay, I'm going to invite in here, and we're just going to look at this situation where the Omicron variant's coming in. Man, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary, but you know what? I have grace. I don't have to let that control me because I have this space provided by grace where, okay, what do I need to do here? How do I need to live? What do I need to trust in? Because that doesn't control me. Grace controls me. Grace is provided to me. Yeah, my child and the situation they're in, okay, I'm going to kind of invite that into my house of grace and be like, okay, hmm, what do I do with this? Because I've got grace. And yes, this is a problem. And yes, I, I might not know what to do right away, but this is a house of grace. And I have space to, to, to figure out what to do and how to live and what, what, how to operate. I don't have to solve all of my problems to be at peace. Because grace creates peace. Grace creates love. Grace creates this space where I can operate in that I don't have to solve all of my problems right now. I don't have to to feel like I'm a failure if I can't solve my problems. I don't have to feel like that I'm lacking in wisdom and power if I can't figure everything out on the fly. Grace creates space for me to operate in. And that's peace, (laughs) is it not? To have the peace of knowing that I don't have to solve all of my problems right away because God's grace is operating in my life helps me to know that it's okay. God is still here. God's still in control. God is still with me. God is still merciful to me. God is still gracious to me. I'm walking in grace. I'm living in grace. And yes, there are threats. And yes, there are problems. But right now, right where I'm at, I have grace. And I don't have just grace for right now. I have grace forever. This means that your most important relationship is God not some other person. Your most important treasure is not money or things or possessions or time. Your most important possession is grace. And your path to peace then is just surrendering your idols and dwelling, trusting in God's love. And 
I realize this can be difficult to do. So this is one, one of the things I work on, I practice, or I, I work on practicing, I'm not great at it all the time, is it's what, what I call a daily reset. So I might spend some time in the morning or the evening in God's word, in prayer, talking to God, but in the middle of the day as things are going on, I can forget about God sometimes, right? So I try, not, don't do it, I'm not as consistent as I'd like to be, but I, what I try to do is take about 10 minutes sometime right around lunch, before, after, during, depending on the situation, where I can just take 10 minutes and be like, okay, where am I? Who am I trusting in? Where's my hope lying? Am I buying into God's promises or some other kinds of promises right now? And just resetting my focus during the day. Why? Because I, I forget the walls of grace that are around me. I forget this space of grace that I'm walking in, and I look to my own performance. I look to my own desires. I look to, to other promises to me that aren't God's. And I just need to reset a little bit. And I'd encourage you to, to do that kind of practice as well. It doesn't have to be around lunch. It could be some other time. But sometime when you know you have a, a break in your day, just take 10 minutes and step back. Maybe remind yourself of a verse or just take some. Where's my heart really at? Am I delighting in God? Am I resting in his grace? Or am I resting in my own performance? Am I looking to some other promises to make me happy and peaceful today? Because Zechariah goes on to talk about it. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Where do we go for peace ultimately? The cross. Because do you want to know God loves you even when it feels like no one loves you? You go to the cross. You see at the cross once again that Christ died for you. What love, my God. We sang it this morning, right? Were you listening to the words that you would come down, <laughs> that you would give of yourself to love me? Like a mighty flood, your love comes in and it changes my life and it gives me this space for grace that is peace. I realize I don't have to solve all of my problems right now. I don't have to, 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 to not to just react to whatever comes at me. I can walk in grace and live in peace. So do you have that peace? If you have God's grace, you do. The question is, are you living in it? I don't know about you, but life has been so chaotic. Things have been so in upheaval in our world, right, with the various things that are going on that sometimes it seems more numb than peaceful, right? Like, what am I even supposed to feel anymore? <laughs> because there's so many things that are happening. And when you feel that way, or if you just feel like 
I'm just going crazy. <laughs> Step back and remember, God's grace is always with you. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises to give you mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. So that no matter what is going on in your life, he won't leave. No matter what wisdom you need, he will freely give it to you. And what kindness and grace you need, he will provide. Will you trust it? Will you listen to that voice? Will you know his peace? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you. We're grateful that you do provide peace to us. And as we take a chance to reflect on the provision of Christ's death on, our, on, on behalf of us, we're reminded in Zechariah of the fact that we will look on him whom we have pierced. Israel did it, but we did it as well with our sin. We caused Christ to go to the cross, but he went out of love for us so that we could be forgiven, we could be cleansed, we could receive grace and have peace. We thank you for that. Help us to listen to your promises. Help us to trust your promises and not others. In your son's name we pray.